Listener-supported KFUO invites you to listen live to our annual share It's your opportunity to show your support to KFUO. If you can't join us live, please prayerfully consider supporting us by calling 314-996-1518 and asking about our giving levels. You can also click the Give Now button on our webpage. share 2017, April 20th, 21st, and 22nd. Listening to Faith and Family, I'm Andy Bates. Thanks to our underwriter, Concordia University, Wisconsin, for supporting this program. To find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin, go to our website, kfuo.org, and look for the CUW logo in the sponsor section there. When it comes to how we spend time with others and what that means, uh, what our relationships and our vocation speak to that, uh, well, the vice president has. Uh, has some, well, a plan of how he does that to protect his marriage, but others see it differently and uh, have a view on that. Uh, to discuss that with us today, the Reverend Hans Finis, pastor of River of Life Lutheran Church in Shanahan, Illinois, also author of the recent Federalist article, The Left Hates Mike Pence for Loving His Wife Because They Don't Really Think Men Can Be Evil. Welcome. Glad to be here. Glad to have you with us today. Welcome back to uh, to Faith and Family, and uh, thanks for your writing in the Federalist. Uh, you 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 wear a number of hats, serving as pastor there, and also the uh, the 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 main mind behind your Lutheran satire website as well. Correct. That is correct. Yes, I, I am officially the president of the nonprofit corporation known as Lutheran Satire, and I didn't realize until after I, we put the bylaws together that legally you can actually give yourself any title that you want. So I could have given myself a, like something like you know Chief Nacho Supreme or something of that nature, and it would have been a bit more fun. That sounds far more interesting than president. Yes, absolutely. But you're not vice president. No, no, I am. I am the uh, chief talk of Supreme President. <laughs> now, why does why does Vice President Pence's uh, standards or his his personal policy, his personal practice, um, why has this become the attention of others when it comes to how he spends time with others, particularly those who are not his wife? Well, I think a lot of this is just. Uh, a lot of what drives this is just people's uh, preconceived notions, and th- when they've already kind of made judgment on someone and the well is already poisoned, they've already decided that they're not going to, to like anything that he does. So it, it, something that's fairly innocuous and that doesn't really affect anyone else and that certainly makes sense from a certain perspective, um, folks are just not going to kind of, you know, put, put on those glasses to see things from the from his perspective and just going to... Um, put themselves in a position to view things in in a sense of judgment and anger. So I think that's what drives a lot of it, um, is that he's a conservative Republican, and so you've got folks who just have already decided, well, then he's a bad guy. Uh, And so when this comes out and this strikes them as a little bit odd and different, um, it's kind of one of these things where they go, well, what kind of outrage can I mine from this? And it's, you know, we've probably all experienced this in life with people who just don't like you. 
and then it, no, it doesn't matter what you say. They're just very skilled at kind of extracting the worst possible construction and wh- whatever the situation is, just whatever's bad, they can somehow uh, pull that out of it. And I think that's what we've seen happen here is that uh, people respond to this and they don't go, oh, that's a, that's a pretty reasonable thing to do if you uh, want to keep yourself from temptation and you want to, certainly if you're a public official, if you want to kind of keep yourself from scandal, that certainly makes sense. Uh, instead, they just go, oh, this must be because he's is a sexist who wants to kind of uh, create a policy that boxes women out of positions of power, you know, com- conveniently ignoring the fact that he chose a woman for his uh, lieutenant governor in, in the state of Indiana, and or, or you know, or that he is somehow some kind of um, malicious uh, sex fiend who can't possibly control his desires, uh, and so he, the reason he's doing this is because he's kind of completely unable to. Uh, see women in any capacity outside of sexually, which I think is, is certainly a stretch. What does the Eighth Commandment teach us about this and how we speak about others, including the vice president? Right, yeah, exactly. I think that's a, a great way to look at it. So the the, the Eighth Commandment uh, is, is chiefly uh, all about, as Luther would talk about, it's, it's your neighbor's reputation. When I talk with my uh, youth confirmation class, we go through kind of each of the commandments, um, that uh, you, you know, you shall not lie, or you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. When we talk about that, I I talk about as I do with the other commandments. What gift is God showing that He's given us in this commandment? You know, so in the first commandment, He's giving us Himself. In the second commandment, He's giving us His name, etc. So when you get to the eighth commandment, we see that God is giving us our reputation, and uh, that this is one of the most important gifts. Uh, that God can give to us, just as it's a great, wonderful gift for God to give us a family, you know, in in, uh, the Sixth Commandment, and to give us possessions in the Seventh Commandment. He's giving us our reputation uh, in the Eighth Commandment. And um, so one of the kind of the the principles that uh, we ought to take from that is that um, that a, a person's reputation is a is a profoundly valuable asset to them. In many ways, it's far more valuable than their money because you can always make you can always make more money if someone robs you. Uh, but if someone takes your reputation, that's a very hard thing to replace. And uh, so I think certainly it makes sense that the vice president would be attempting to uh, would be attempting to safeguard his um, reputation in this. Uh, and likewise, that um, uh, that we should that we should, as people who are seeking to be faithful Christians, um, just kind of operate on the assumption that when a when a guy kind of sets up these boundaries for himself, he's just doing so simply for the sake of trying to honor his wife. Uh, for trying to keep himself out of a, a situation that could potentially get bad, and to, and to for the well-being of certainly for the you know, for well-being of the, of the people he's representing, that he's not getting caught up in, in scandal. So why is this? Why is this important now? This is, as I understand it, it was in 2002 when when Mike Pence first right. shared his his policy, and the policy we're talking about today is. That he stated that he never eats alone with a woman other than his wife, and, and and furthermore, he won't attend events featuring alcohol without her by his side either. Right. Why? Why is if this was announced in two thousand two? Why is this an issue now? Well, I think I'd imagine most people didn't really know about it because two thousand two, Mike Pence was not really on much of of anyone's radar. Um, you know, certainly not pretty much anyone outside of the state of Indiana. Um, and so I'd imagine that this is just, you know, uh, this was something that I, I probably for your average uh, secular person of a more liberal stripe would read it, 
that's something that kind of has the has the whiff of well that seems like a sort of conservative evangelical thing to do and uh and in particular if you're of the mindset that that con- you know that conservative evangelicals are all just sort of um completely caught up in sexual repression and and misogyny and sexism and things of this nature that's going to be something that you're just going to kind of uh, latch on to so despite the fact that these comments are are uh, you know a bit dated uh that doesn't it, that's not going to matter for for people who who want to be angry about them and you know in the same way that you know it's like i said before you know if if you've ever had people who just decided they don't want to like you like you and they just sort of are bent on taking anything you say out of the in the wrong context you can try to explain yourself you can try and sort of set the proper context before them and why you said the thing that they said but it's you know when people have already made up their minds that they're uh, going to, that they're going to be angry they're not going to let uh, the the facts and the evidence tell them otherwise so we'll take a look at this in just a moment why different how different worldviews view this policy that that uh, this personal policy that that Mike Pence has established but but let's let's look at it more closely to begin with in, he he says he will he never eats alone with a woman other than his wife, and that he won't attend events featuring alcohol without her by his side. Has he given reasons or, or more explanation to this further uh, further explanation why such a policy? Not that I know of, but this is um, I think this is a fairly common policy, certainly in evangelical circles. This is. Um, what some people have called the Billy Graham rule, or something of this nature, that uh, that this was a practice that Billy Graham had, uh, you know, during his um, the I presume the majority of his ministry, um, which was obviously just meant to uh, to make sure that he was not in, not put into a position where there could be kind of any sort of a whiff of scandal, because you know there are there are certain vocations in life where scandal is. Uh, is much more harmful to what it is that you're trying to accomplish than it is to other ones, to, in other vocations, you know. And uh, and the office of pastor is obviously very high up uh, on that list. You know, you can be you can be a movie star and uh, and you know get caught committing adultery or at least be in a situation that looks like uh, it's adulterous, and it's probably not going to affect your career uh, too uh, too much by virtue of the fact that people don't really look to uh, actors for. Um, kind of moral guidance. Well, uh, at, in, least I, at least it, I hope they're not. In today's uh, society, it it wouldn't hinder your career; it would probably only advance it. Right? Yeah. There, yeah. There's certainly there's certainly that that aspect of things. Um, and um, but obviously, for for pastors who are trying to make the, focus their lives on proclaiming the gospel, uh, it's you know a scandal of that nature. It scandalizes um, the ministry. It scandalizes your your words. It makes it difficult for people to believe the truth uh, that you're proclaiming. So you can, you know, this, this is why it is that kind of historically that the church has, has uh, said, you know, that if men who have scandalized themselves in such a way are no longer to be pastors. Um, you know, if if they can't uh, can't keep the the biblical requirements uh, that Paul gives in First Timothy, you know, that men be the husband of one wife and things of this nature, that the problem is, is it's not that if you commit adultery, all of a sudden you can't speak the truth. It's that it's every word of truth that you speak is clouded with the shame that you've brought upon it. So, um, so in order to keep the preaching of the gospel pure, uh, it's we desire that you know it's it's beneficial for the church that pastors uh, that the men who are preaching it are you know are living exemplary lives in that manner. 
So I think it's a, it's a fairly common uh, thing, certainly in evangelical circles, um, you know. And it's this is I think something that uh, that you know your average uh, parish pastor uh, certainly would deals with this question of you know how do you if you're doing pastoral counseling. If you're you know, doing making visits on people, you know how do you make sure that you don't put yourself in an awkward position? Um, you know, if you have, you know, in particular, if you have women who need counseling, uh, well, it's probably not good to be going over to a woman's house, you know, alone uh, by yourself. You don't want to, uh, you don't want to give the appearance of evil, uh, and you don't uh, want to put yourself in a position where, you know, for, especially, you know, oftentimes if you're when you're dealing with people who are if they're going through, say, marital issues and things of that nature, where where there's a tremendous amount of emotion and and people are oftentimes looking for kind of physical contact to as a as a form of you know, bonding with another human being, which can start off, you know, not in a in a lustful way, uh, but certainly can kind of open the doors to those things. So you have to kind of set boundaries for yourself, you know, a few steps before temptation is even going to kind of come about. So I think it's a very reasonable and sensible uh, practice. So it's reasonable, it's sensible, it's a, a way of safeguarding um, his his marriage, but also his career potentially. Right, yeah, and this is one of the things I find a little bit ironic about the outrage about this, is it by and large has been coming from uh, people who would, I'm sure, self-identify as being liberals or progressives, and the kind of the same group of folks who are, uh, you know, were quite upset that, uh, that Donald Trump won the election. And which is fine. I don't. I don't begrudge anyone. Uh, you know, being uh, dismayed at, at the results of an election. But I just there's something a bit odd to me about it. Where you say, where, and I kind of talk about this at the, at the end of the piece, where I say, well, look, if you're if you're incredibly upset that Hillary Clinton isn't president, you ought to look at. at and, but at the same time, you want to mo- mock Mike Pence for this. Well, look, if if uh, President uh, Bill Clinton had adopted a policy of this nature. The election results might have gone uh, quite differently. I, you know, I think it's whether this is fair or not. I don't know, but it's there's certainly been uh, there are many Americans who look at Hillary Clinton and they see in her a woman who has turned a blind eye to her husband's uh, deplorable treatment of women, and and even with some you know degree of credibility, who's been actively complicit in you know um, going after the reputations of women who have made accusations against them. And uh, I think, you know, the reality is, is that if Bill Clinton had adopted a policy of this nature and hadn't had kind of that whole scandal around his presidency, he probably wouldn't have saddled his wife with that reputation. And without that extra kind of weight dragging her down, I think it's quite possible that the results of the the presidential election would have been uh, quite different. What is, so looking at this from a a couple of worldviews, you know, from this uh, progressive or liberal worldview, what is the the, the chief reason for outrage uh, w- towards Mike Pence's dining policy? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you're looking at it from the perspective of a worldview that's kind of behind all this, rather than just, you know, I don't like that guy. So mm-hmm. I think the, yeah, probably the deeper issue here is kind of what I get at in the piece, which is uh, that Christians and um, I guess it, you would call them secular humanists. I don't always know always know what the right term to use is because it's not like it's a monolithic group. But the, those two groups uh, view human nature very differently. And uh, Christians would say, man has a sinful nature. He's born as an enemy of God. He's born um, 
inclined towards evil, and uh, he's born rejecting the, the things of God. Uh, and on account of that, um, man needs an outside force to to do good. So uh, at least in a, in a civil sense, he needs an outside force in the sense of, you know, you need, this is what Paul talks about in Romans 13, how you need earthly governments to basically threaten to hit people in the head with a large stick and, until they behave. And when you have governments that don't do that, people tend to misbehave. And um, and like and but then ultimately even more importantly um, that you have uh, you have God sending the Holy Spirit to us uh, to create a new nature in us through faith to give us that new nature in the waters of baptism uh, and this new nature is one that loves and cherishes the things of God and which is and that new nature lives kind of in battle with the old nature in every day of our lives so we need so we need an outside force. Um, to to set us on the path of goodness, whereas um, if you're of a kind of a liberal secular humanist mindset, your belief is that man is inherently good, uh, and that it's only external factors that corrupt man. It's not that man is corrupt in his very nature, and uh, on account of this, um, then if you believe that man is inherently good. Uh, all you have to do is take away the stuff that makes him bad. You know, so if you just take away poverty, if you just take away oppression, if you just take away a lack of education, man will be inherently good. And you know, as Christians, we have a tendency to look at this and going and say, "Well, look, have you been paying attention to all of human history? You know, all of human history is a guy with lots of money and lots of opportunities and lots of education uh, was the worst guy who." has ever lived and it's just kind of that you know copied and pasted throughout you know a, a huge percentage of cultures in the world or pretty much every culture just you know over various generations and so i think when you have these two competing worldviews what ends up happening is for christians the concept of discipline and borders is good because those prevent you from reverting back to your sinful nature Whereas if you are, if you believe that man's inherently good, you see borders and um, and boundaries and discipline as in, as inherently bad and insulting, because it, because those things are saying you you don't have enough in and of yourself to be able uh, to to triumph over temptation and uh, and bad desires that you need some outside force to fix you, and so I think that's ultimately what it is that people find to be so offensive about it. But yet, you don't necessarily. This isn't strictly a Christian worldview versus a a, a, a secular right. humanist worldview. You quote a, a self-identified atheist in the the Federalist article. Yeah, uh, Tan Nahisi Coates, I think is how you say his name, uh, and he he wrote an article for the Atlantic a couple of years ago where he where he talks about this, and, and he's not at all a Christian. He's certainly not a conservative. Um, but he basically talks about. He says, "Look, I don't, I don't believe in being uh, uh, in avoiding the moment." He says, "I believe in not getting to the point where you have the moment." So um, he says, "I, I don't." I, his quote is, "I don't believe in getting in the moment and then exercising willpower. I believe in avoiding the moment," which I think is a great way, uh, a great way of putting it. And yeah, so it's certainly not. It's not as though you have to believe in the Trinity. Uh, to have this understanding of man's nature that he needs, that man needs some kind of borders, and that it's best for him if he doesn't want to give in to a temptation to just to set the borders a few steps before he even gets to it. Uh, so it's yeah, not as though you need to be a Christian in order to believe that, even though that's kind of born from a Christian worldview. 
Um, it's but it's yeah. It's, there's are plenty of plenty of people who aren't uh, who aren't believers, um, who aren't uh, you know who could, who wouldn't confess the Nicene Creed, uh, who would still say yeah that sounds like a pretty good idea because people are prone to do terrible stuff if they don't have some kind of limitations placed on them. So if your worldview recognizes that that you're not inherently good, whether it's a Christian worldview or not, I mean it certainly it stems from the from the, the Christian worldview, but right. if your worldview acknowledges that you're inherently evil, then such a safeguard is a, a good thing. Right, yeah, exactly. That that these things are they're necessary for kind of funneling you into the direction that you want to go and that you won't go without them. It's a safeguard to protect you and and others from your sinful self. Right. Which brings us back to what the 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 uses of the law. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That it's um, so. There's you know, in the uses of the law, we talk about how the chief use of the law is is a mirror to show us our sin. Um, and but this kind of concept of boundaries is well, so that and that's obviously the chief use in the sense that the main the purpose the law is given is to show us that we are sinners, so that we will. N- recognize our need for Christ and so that the gospel will make sense to us so that it has we have some frame of reference for understanding what it means for Christ to take away our sins but we also talk about the first use and the third use of the law and so the first use is uh, what we call a curb and that's just kind of simply the idea that um, the th- that the threat of punishment is how you uh, basically force unbelievers to behave uh, so, uh, you know, there, there's the kind of this common saying uh, that's become popular in these kind of secular liberal groups when they talk about uh, the issue of sexual assault. And people will say things like, we need to teach men not to rape. And it, it reminds me of a story of when I was in college, I was talking to a friend of mine who was doing one of these um, kind of, uh, uh, it, the, I'm blanking on the word right now, uh, where where the kids come to school and they teach them how to uh, orientation meeting. Mm-hmm. That's the word I'm looking for. And um, sorry about that. And so they're at this orientation meeting, and she's talking about you know various situations of how to you know how to basically not get yourself into problematic situations. And she's talking about kind of this issue of of sexual assault and how this is oftentimes a problem on campuses. And um, she explains to the uh, students um, that a girl just because a girl goes up to your room with you guys doesn't mean that you're entitled to her body. And uh, this guy pipes up and basically says, yeah, it does. And she says, no, it, it doesn't. Just that's not consent. And she's approaching this as though he's confused as to the concept of consent. If she just explains to him, oh, no, 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 that's not that doesn't count as her saying that she's uh, that she's up for it. Uh, and his response and his response was basically, if she comes up to my room, I get to do whatever I want. And I don't care what she thinks about it, because, you know, these are the rules that I will impose because I'm bigger and stronger and I can do what I want. And all in all in the span of about 30 seconds, remember this girl telling me the story, she realized, oh, there are people in this world that you can't teach not to rape. So they're just awful, evil human beings that you need to protect yourself from. And that's the nature of the first use of the law, is that um, what this young man's problem was wasn't a lack of education, it was a lack of fear, is that he was a a godless pagan uh, who needed to have the threat of punishment hanging over his head. He needed someone to say, if you do this, you know, we're going to throw you in prison uh, and leave you to rot there. And that's the only kind of, you know, or we're going to hit you in the head with a giant stick. 
and you know kind of one there's some form of punishment that would make him realize okay that's even though I want to do that thing I'm not going to do it because the punishment is so severe that uh, it's not worth it so that's kind of how we view the first use of the law whereas the third use of the law is what we what we call uh, the guide so that it's this is how the law functions for Christians where it shows us um, how to do the things of God, how to how we ought to live as those who have been given a new nature. So for for the new man in us who desires to live according to God's commandments, how are we to do that? And sometimes the first use and the third use have kind of a similar look externally, even though they're kind of coming from um, from different places. But this is so certainly for Christians, uh, Mike Pence's policy is definitely coming from a, that third use of the law type of thing, is, is saying, I want to live a holy life. I want to live according to God's commandments. I want to make sure that I'm not committing adultery. I want to honor my spouse, and I want to uh, keep myself free of, of scandal and a tarnished reputation. So how are the ways that I can accomplish that? You know, What can I do to ensure that that happens? And this is, I think, a, certainly, it's, there's, it's not like the Bible gives a very clear, specific answer on that. It gives kind of a, you know, a general principle. Uh, and But this is, I think, uh, this practice is certainly one that would fall within the, the reasonable boundaries of that principle. So Mike Pence's at least 15-year-old policy on, uh, on dining with others not only revealed different worldviews regarding the, the sinful nature of mankind, but also the, you know, sin and law, but also the differing views on redemption, too. Yes. Yeah, this is something I find really interesting about this, is that uh, people will oftentimes look at Christians and they'll say, you guys have such a negative view of human nature, because you say uh, that uh, that people are, are born in sin, that they're born as, as enemies of God. Um, and but the reality is, is that as, as Christians, we believe that all men are redeemable. Every man can, is, um, is, is uh, able to be saved. Every man is able to be made worthy uh, in the eyes of God uh, through the blood of Christ, because Jesus shed his blood for the sins of all mankind. Uh, all mankind has been given all they need uh, in that cross to be declared righteous uh, before the eyes of God. And yet, What's so odd to me about this is that kind of on the secular side, the sort of secular humanist side, there's this view that, no, all men are basically good, and yet some men are irredeemable. Uh, And that seems to be sort of the case with with Mike Pence, is that for a man to say, I I would just kind of like to avoid getting myself into a bad situation, and for, for people to respond with, oh, this must mean that you're just some, you know, reprobate uh, sex fiend, that you're just some reprobate misogynist uh, who's intent on discriminating against women and hating women. Uh, it seems to show that in this worldview, all men are basically good, but, but some men are irredeemable. And oddly enough, the way you can spot the men who are irredeemable is if they're trying to avoid sin. It's a, it's a very kind of odd judgment to make. Very odd and and quite a bit reversed. What is, what do you think regarding uh, Mike Pence's dinner policy? Something that's that's worthwhile? Yeah, I think it's uh, a perfectly reasonable uh, a perfectly reasonable policy to have. Um, there doesn't. I don't think you. It'd be very difficult to show any evidence that um, that women are somehow held back in the political sphere 
by virtue of the fact that their that their bosses won't essentially go on dates with them. I find I just find that to be an odd uh, an odd argument that people are trying to make that somehow the only way for you to get ahead is to have a private meeting with a married man. Um, that just seems to be to, to be trying to argue your case based off of uh, phantoms that don't really exist. Um, so I, I think it's a perfectly reasonable uh, policy where you say, well, look, there's not really any, it doesn't professionally benefit anyone. It's, you know, it's, you can get the same information across. You can still see if someone is worthy of a promotion and stuff like that based off of, you know, meetings that you're having, you know, during regular office hours uh, and, and, thing, and things of that nature. So, uh, yeah, I think it's the idea that you have to, and likewise, his, his policy with, uh, with drinking, it, it seems, you know, it, um, seems to make a decent amount of sense that uh, if you're attending functions with alcohol that where, you know, people are, tend to have too much, uh, it's just, it's good to have your wife by your side so that uh, you don't find yourself in a, in a bad situation. The Reverend Hans Feeney, pastor of River of Life Lutheran Church, Shanahan, Illinois, and author of the recent Federalist article, Left Hates Mike Pence for Loving His Wife Because They Don't Really Think Men Can Be Evil. Pastor Feeney, thanks so much for being my guest today on Faith and Family. Thank you so much. Concordia University, Wisconsin and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. Charlie Daniels is a country music hall of famer with a long and lustrous career. He's also well known for speaking out on issues important to him. Major American cities have been in the news lately because their politicians have declared them sanctuary cities. This means city leaders are defying federal laws by shielding illegal immigrants from deportation. Mr. Daniels came up with an interesting idea and in his opinion, a better use of sanctuary cities. He suggested these urban areas become sanctuaries for unborn babies by offering them life-saving protection from the abortion industry. Cities would be declared abortion-free zones so babies and their mothers would be protected from the violence of abortion. Whether or not you're a fan of country music, you gotta love Charlie Daniels. Follow us on Twitter at Life Issues USA and stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. Worldwide KFUO salutes our day sponsors on this Tuesday, April 11th, 2017. Today's day sponsors are Rod and Bonnie Zwanitzer. Today's day sponsors have made a contribution to Worldwide KFUO in loving memory of Bonnie's mother, Lee Glotzhober, who is home with the Lord. Once again, we say thank you to Rod and Bonnie Zwanitzer of the Villages, Florida. Today's Worldwide KFUO day sponsors. Babies come with lots of decisions. Cloth or disposable, crib or bassinet. So when it comes to protection, go with the safest, most effective choice, immunization. Get all the recommended vaccines for your baby by age two to protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases. 
For more reasons to immunize, talk to your child's doctor. Go to health.mo.gov slash immunizations or call 800-219-3224. Brought to you by the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. This is Pastor John Veeker, Senior Assistant to President Harrison here in St. Louis. Agnus Day Liturgical Arts continues the fine tradition of proclaiming the gospel through Christian art, through the production of altarpieces, paintings, and drawings. Agnus Day Liturgical Arts portrays the gospel in all its splendor. Their website is agnusdayarts.com. That's A-G-N-U-S-D-E-I arts.com. Hi, I'm Mark Hawkinson with an invitation for you to join me over the weekday noon hour for Moments of Assurance, your lunchtime spiritual recipe. You'll enjoy encouraging scriptures, a bit of Bible history and trivia, news items, humor, the kids' corner, and more, all mixed in with faith-strengthening sacred music, a blend just right for your midday hour. So join me, won't you? That's Moments of Assurance over the weekday noontime hour here on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Our Give Now button at kfuo.org is available 24 hours a day. Also, you can send email to gifts at kfuo.org and ask for information about our various giving opportunities. To call and talk to someone today, contact Mary at 314-996-1518 or Mark Hawkinson at 314-996-1520. Support the mission of Worldwide KFUO and help us reach the world with the gospel. Welcome back to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. Something fun today. Do you, do you enjoy, perhaps maybe have a, a more artistic side? Like to doodle while you're, uh, while you're just sitting around pondering the things of life? Ever thought how you could use that time to learn more of God's Word? Well, we have a, a great gift to give away as well today. Listen, and uh, we'll give some instructions as well about what we're giving away today. Something really fun. In studio with me today, the Reverend Dr. Tony Cook, Director of the United States Ministries for Lutheran Hour Ministries, and also author of The Illuminated Catechism. Dr. Cook, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Welcome back. Glad to have you in studio, and uh, thanks for bringing along something really fun I, we were excited when we uh, hear Sarah and I were excited when we first saw the Illuminated Catechism in the lineup from CPH and uh, can't wait to share more about it with our listeners today. Looks like, I don't know, something that, um, well, some of us have been waiting for for a while, something that, that you can uh, just sit and relax, but also meditate on God's word while you're doing something creative or artistic and uh, it, it looks like a really neat tool. I can't wait to uh, to hear from you uh, the idea behind this and and where this all began. Tell us a little bit about your work. You have you've served at Concordia Seminary here in St. Louis as a, a professor, and now with Lutheran Hour Ministries. Tell me a little bit about your work there. Yeah, at Lutheran Hour, I'm the director of United States Ministries. So in my division, we uh, oversee the Lutheran Hour radio program uh, with Reverend Dr. Greg Seltz. Uh, we also um, put together all of our educational material as well as our outreach efforts. And most recently, uh, that effort has been online outreach with our uh, new program entitled Thread. 
So you stay quite busy. Yeah. <laughs> but yet, Idle hands. You, you found some time uh, to, uh, to write the Illuminated Catechism. Yeah. Where did this idea begin? Um, it actually began with trying to find a way to prolong the time that I personally spend in devotions. And um, I have a very kind of busy mind. And so when, I'm, when I try to focus on something, a thousand other thoughts come in. And so for the past few years, I've been uh, looking for different artistic devotional uh, techniques to stay focused. So really it was uh, trying to develop my personal devotional skills. And um, uh, I thought, well, what if I took doodling and art and things I like to do and uh, somehow integrated that into time for reflection and contemplation on the small catechism. Um, for years, I've carried that. I don't know if you've ever seen the little tiny pocket catechism. It's just a few pages stapled together. You know, I, I'd carry that around and I'd try to read it and, and be mm-hmm. diligent about it, but I could only maintain focus for uh, a little bit of time. And, and I found that by using devotional uh, artistic approaches that since it took me longer to uh, doodle or to color or whatever the project might be, that it created a space for me to have prolonged reflection on God's Word. Would this be, could we compare this to perhaps, you know, I've, musically, I've heard some say that one of the reasons we chant the Psalms is so that we don't rush through them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, another reason is so that they can be heard. We, we tend to project more when we chant, but, but so that we, we take our time and don't just rush through reading them, but when we chant them, we, we take our time and meditate on them. Could that be, could, oh, yeah. the, could that be a comparison that at when we, sometimes when we, we sit down with the catechism or even, uh, you know, reciting the catechism by heart, sometimes we may rush through it far too quickly and not really meditate on God's word and what he teaches us in his word and as it's summed up in the catechism. Yeah, that approach of um, spending more time and not rushing through actually was one of the the quotes that we uh, pulled from Luther um, about uh, meditating and reflecting and actually speaking the words as well. Um, I think that by reflecting on it and even speaking it or thinking about it as you're doing the illustration, that it it's a way of savoring it. One of the one of the metaphors that Luther used um, was that the Word of God in kind of reflective uh, study was like taking an herb and rubbing that between your fingers. And the more you rub it, it kind of releases that, that mm-hmm. smell and that essence, you know? Um, so for me, that, that's exactly what it is. It not only does it allow me to spend more time, but it allows me to slow down in a way that I can read the words or actually hear the words where I might not have heard them for uh, a number of years because they'd become more commonplace. Sure. We're not taking the time to, to in this fast-paced society in which we live, our lives seem to have a, a fast-paced tempo until it's time to go to sleep. And even then, some of us have trouble with that <laughs> because our, our, our tempo, our rhythm is too fast. And so finding ways to slow down, particularly when it comes to meditating on God's Word, uh, this is, well, this is important. So why, uh, why art? Why doodling? 
Um, I think that putting together artistic exercises that everyone can do was important for me. Um, I'm a person that I kind of have an artist like inside of me, but I have absolutely no <laughs> skill. Um, so it's, it's always a, a frustrated artist inside of me. Um, and so I wanted to put together something that um, seems simple and accessible to essentially, you know, any age, something that we had done uh, from our youth. You know, everybody knows how to color and, and doodle and things mm-hmm. like that. So I didn't want it to have a, a, a large threshold or, you know, too high of a, of a bar for that. And so I thought, you know, what is the kind of things that we can use that pretty much anybody can do? And, and you don't even have to stay in the lines if you don't want, but, um, <laughs> uh, but at least gives you that place. It takes the fear away. It's not like uh, giving you a blank page and saying, um, draw a picture for me, you know, of something that represents uh, a concept. Someone's already done that. Uh, the, the illustrator, Susan Spellman, yeah. has, has done that, has taken she the, did the, hard work the that. concepts uh, that, that you've conveyed as you work through the, the small catechism, taking those concepts and then created these, these line, th- this line art that yes. we then get to color. That's correct. Yeah. Um, it was an interesting process to put together. Um, the, the process, actually, I didn't do alone. Um, I uh, worked with my son, Ben, um, over, started on a Christmas break up in the uh, uh, area of Minnesota where my in-laws are at. And yeah, we were always trying to figure out, you know, what is one thing that we're going to do as son and dad over our Christmas break? And I think the prior year he taught me how to play Minecraft or something like that. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, this year I took uh, the large catechism with me and um, we would read the sections of the large catechism that corresponded with uh, the small catechism. And we would try to pull from that uh, imagery because uh, a lot of people don't read the large catechism as much, but in the large catechism is where you really kind of have that illustrative material and, and very kind of uh, image, uh, vivid imagery. And so we would read through this and try to find the images. And then we would um, reflect on the catechism and think, well, how could we connect the two together? And then you'd write a description. And um, we'd say, you know, on the right-hand page, draw a picture of, you know, and you'd write this kind of detailed description. And then um, the art department at CPH uh, would send those to Susan, and she would crank out a number of drafts, uh, beginning with pencil sketches, and then they would ink them up and go back and forth Hmm. until uh, we got the illustrations that we have in the book today. Here's one that, uh, as I thumb through the book, uh, looking at the the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer on uh, 52 and 53, that that catches my attention and the the illustration here. So we're looking at the small catechism, the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, for Mm -hmm. thine is the kingdom and the glory, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We're learning about prayer and the image here. Describe the the image that uh, we would be coloring uh, regarding the conclusion of the Lord's it's, Prayer. It's nice to have a coloring book on radio. So I know. <laughs> join me as I take you on this audio journey. Um, actually, on the right-hand page, on the left-hand page is a little devotion, um, and on the right-hand page there is a, a sensor with uh, a number of uh, swirls of incense coming out. So I don't know if you've seen that in, mm-hmm. in your church before. Um, but all these swirls of incense uh, coming out of the top of this kind of ornate sensor and then uh, curling down uh, around the bottom of the page. And then uh, there's words inside of the swirls that says, uh, yes, yes, 
it shall be so. So um, picking up that idea of uh, our prayers rising to heaven like like incense before God, and then um, it's the conclusion, and so the yes, yes, it shall be so, um, kind of the descriptive nature of the word amen um, that's there. So, How would you describe this style of art? Well, it was interesting. There were a number of styles we could have um, done this in, but I wanted a hand-drawn style. Um, so the, the two things I wanted was I wanted uh, a hand-drawn style and I wanted it to look like it was done by um, an illustrator, you know, like a, a children's book illustrator or something like that. And that's actually what, what Susan is. Um, so to me, I didn't want it to look really uh, mechanical or like I had done it in Adobe or something <laughs> like that. But I wanted it to look like you were coloring something that, that someone actually um, picked up a pen and, and drew themselves. But this is very... This isn't like a children's cartoon. That it's not that type of illustration. It's not. It's this is certainly something that we're not talking about a, a children's coloring book here. This is certainly no. for uh, for adults, maybe youth as well. Yeah. And I mean, mm-hmm. kids certainly could participate in this, but this is really the the, the audience here are are adults. Well, this is done in the style of of an adult coloring book. So if you've seen other adult coloring books that are out there, um, this style uh, should look pretty pretty familiar to you. Uh, but I was thinking that, um, as you said, anybody could probably color them, but the text that goes with it, I would say is probably um, meant more for uh, beginning with someone maybe in junior confirmation up through adult. Mm-hmm. But it was funny because when I, when I designed this, I was kind of just designing it for me, <laughs> you know, and then I thought, you know, I got to have a better demographic than that. Um, and uh, CPH makes you write this description of your audience. And, and the original audience was the uh, adult coloring book uh, demographic. That mm-hmm. was the original audience. And I was doing this with Ben and putting it together and someone saw a couple snapshots of it and they said, well, you know, I, I think I could probably use this at home, like at the kitchen table or something with my kids. And then someone said, wow, I'd like to use this as a confirmation supplement. And I thought, I never even thought of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so sure. you're putting together a catechism and I, it never occurred to me. Um, but uh, I, a lot of my projects are, are kind of like love projects that I, I put together just mm-hmm. because I have an interest in it. And uh, so it was a project, I think, looking for an audience at first, but, <laughs> but then people helped me understand uh, the different ways that it could be used. And my editor, uh, Scott at CPH, was very helpful. Several of the images are what we might call liturgical art. Yes. Images that we see in uh, in the sanctuary, in the uh, maybe perhaps even you know, some are, are reminiscent of stained glass. Yeah. And the images we might see there, uh, particularly you know, thinking of uh, the sacrament of holy baptism, um, page 54 and 55. Mm-hmm. Looks like uh, you know it reminds me of 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 what we would see in stained glass and and certainly resembles that and just a a um, a meaningful way to spend time meditating on what does it mean to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, the uh, liturgical art. I um, I mentioned that in an interview I did with CPH. That for me was really one of the primary starting places for art and devotional mm-hmm. reflection. Um, I went to uh, Church Trinity in central Illinois, and they had uh, dozens and dozens of uh, small stained glass windows around the top of the church. But then um, 
behind the chancel, there were floor-to-ceiling stained glass windows. Hmm. And, um, well, I got to admit, I kind of stared at those while the sermons were going on sometimes <laughs> when I was a little kid. But um, those images I can still see vividly in my head. And um, they encapsulated the narrative of faith so well that um, being a visual person, when I think of those stories, I call to mind those images. Um, and also just the images I grew up with. If you look at the front of it, you can see that uh, some of the images there, if you uh, get the old uh, catechism, the one that I had, it had these little tiny simple drawn um, icons that mm-hmm. were in there. And uh, the, the cover is kind of reminiscent of, of what you would have found in the old catechism. This is, I know Sarah has been wrestling with this, keeping these uh, on her desk, because I know she just wants to color them all in. So <laughs> rather than to tempt her, perhaps we should give these away today. What do you think? That sounds should great. Should we do that? Yeah, at least we'll have three of them that someone has. <laughs> we have three to give away to the, the first three callers, 1-800-730-2727. Sarah is standing by to to take the first three calls and give away uh, the Illuminated Catechism, Doodle, Journal, and Reflect by uh, Tony Cook and uh, the illustrator Susan Spellman from Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-730-2727. Or if you're in St. Louis, 314-821-0850. And uh, Sarah will take your, your information down and, and we'll, we'll get, them in, get one in the mail to you today. So you, you spent some time, you mentioned, reflecting on... The large catechism as you prepared this, right? Yeah. Because it's something that uh, a, a resource that's quite often overlooked. We many of us have committed to heart the, the small catechism. What did you What did you glean from the large catechism that that helped you as you prepared this? Well, the large catechism is interesting because obviously there's more time spent on on each topic. Um, I think I didn't include all of that in in this piece, but the large catechism provides a larger historical context, I think, um, at least my, my perspective on that. You understand a little bit more about um, the topics that are being covered, uh, why those topics are so important, uh, at least uh, historically. Um, and so it to me, the large catechism is a combination of this basic tool of Christian faith where it's set and enfleshed in the actual context in, in which it was written. And um, as I said before, because there's more time spent on each topic, um, there's just more visual language um, and examples that are used. And so even when I was a pastor uh, full-time, I would go to large catechism and try to say, well, what's an illustration that I could use to kind of bring this point home? And And at first I you know, I never really thought about it. And I started to look to large catechism, like, well, it's, it's already here, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so I grew to appreciate it just because I, I believe that it, it fleshed it out a little bit more and um, it, it made it deeper and richer. But, but it is a tool that I think that a lot of people have yet to explore. How, you mentioned earlier, this might be something used in, in junior catechesis and confirmation. Who else might use this or what settings, in what settings might this be used? Well, for me, I originally um, put it together to be used as a form of personal devotion. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a friend, Jason, and Jason and I um, 
we do our devotions individually. And then one day he said, well, why don't we try doing some things together? And uh, so at work, we'd close the door and uh, have our own devotions. And we would come up with different ways of studying texts and uh, things like that. And so uh, for me, a lot of what I do is an outgrowth of um, carving out time in my daily life to just kind of spend time in the word. So that would, that's kind of one thing that you could use it for is either uh, private devotion or devotion, um, uh, husband and wife or, or with your friend, like I did with Jason. Um, also I've had some people uh, say that they wanted to use it after supper and, um, to use it with their family. Um, while uh, the uh, child's coloring or or even your coloring or your coloring together, uh, the adult can kind of read through and, and ask any question you want. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I have some questions on each page uh, for each section that's kind of like a beginning reflective question. But, you know, you can make up anything you want uh, to help that conversation. Um, so that'd be a way. Um, people have also said that they thought about using it in a, in a Lutheran school setting where um, religion is a, is a daily class. Mm-hmm. Um, and then an- another uh, person had talked about, um, was an after school kind of program, like a mm-hmm. wraparound program. Sure. So it's funny. I have one idea, but everybody else had a dozen more. So some of these are so detailed. I would imagine it would take me longer than uh, a typical <laughs> yeah. religion or theology class in in uh, Lutheran school. I, I could probably spend all day coloring. Yeah, that's the of kind these. of homework I wish I had in school. Was go home and color something. <laughs> <laughs> and, and well, and reading the text and. Yeah, you know, and meditating on that while you're you're coloring. Oh, and then there's also points. Um, I, I say in the introduction that while you're coloring, if your mind kind of goes astray um, and you start thinking about other things, that you can go back and reflect either on the devotional thought. But I've also included um, Bible passages, the reflective question, and then I've included um, for each one a verse from a hymn. And I think hymnody to me is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a treasure that we have. It for me, hymnody is uh, really a great catechetical tool for people that are engaged by music, and it's just so basic and clean and clear. Um, so hopefully, uh, those would be some things that you could reflect back on as you're going through. Certainly, listen to some nice sacred music from KFUO while you're uh, sure working in right. your illuminated catechism. Well, and there's uh, markings uh, down at the bottom that tell you where they came from if you wanted to. Uh, many of them are from the uh, from the LSB uh, that are down there. And then other ones um, have come from other various places that were kind of my favorite favorite hymns. The the prayers in the back, are the, the illustrations for the prayers are all very interesting. Uh, the uh, And the solas. Oh, yeah. They're, they're all in, in circle form. Yeah, these uh, were kaleidoscopes. Uh, they were based off of the style of a kaleidoscope. And so you can see, um, like for adoration, holy, 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 that's a very kind of kaleidoscope-looking image on page 75. But they were all designed to um, be that type of uh, reflection of the uh, of the design, so they look like kaleidoscopes. And it just makes a lot of really nice patterns to color. <laughs> now, this, uh, w- w- this book doesn't uh, release until... Uh, the seventeenth, the eighteenth, eighteenth, eighteenth. So yeah. coming up next week. Yeah. Somehow we managed to. Uh, our friends at Concordia Publishing House gave us a few copies 
early so that uh, we could share them with our listeners. And it looks like the uh, Sarah was quite busy answering all the, the calls in there. So thanks to the, the folks who called today. And congratulations to the first three callers who called in today for the Illuminated Catechism. Any more adventures now that you've completed this? Uh, have you colored in your own copy yet? I haven't. I have not. Um, I just got mine uh, in the mail. They sent me some mm-hmm. copies. And um, actually, the first one I saw was uh, they posted on Facebook a picture of it. And so I called and I said, hey, can I get a copy? And then the next day, they, they sent some in the mail. It's interesting. There's a hashtag um, that they put on the website. It's hashtag Illuminated Catechism. And when you color it, you can uh, take a picture and uh, uh-huh. tag it. And that's really what the biggest payout, I got to tell you, the biggest payout for me isn't really going to be me coloring it, uh, oddly enough, but I just want one person <laughs> to, to color it and to uh, post it. So I can see, I want to know that someone used it. Um, uh, and that's my biggest goal is that if people use it and, and it enriches their devotional time, then... That's a win for me. I'm good. <laughs> Absolutely. To to uh, just you color it, take a picture of it, post it on social media with the hashtag yeah. Illuminated, illuminated Cat- Catechism. Yeah. Of course, you got to remember how to spell Illuminated. Yeah, it's on the front of the book there, but <laughs> if you're like me, you might have to look it up. So. <laughs> spell check it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I lo- the uh, the third commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Out of the uh, the art for this one too. It's what page is that? Uh, page ten and eleven. Pages ten and eleven. It's the altar. Yeah, the yeah, altar. that's a great one. Yeah, it's beautiful. Got your chalice and everything there. And... Well, I'm not going to get much done the rest of the day if I have one of these laying around. <laughs> I know Sarah's been fighting the temptation for a couple of days when these came in to uh, to color all of them. Well, we'll have to get some more as well. Uh, these would make fine Christmas presents, maybe a little early for Christmas, but nice gifts throughout the year. It's always fun to talk with you, Tony. Yeah. Thanks so much for your work on this, uh, the Illuminated Catechism, and uh, to Susan Spellman as well for all the fine artwork she in this as well. And uh, I guess we're kind of collaborating with Susan as we color in the, uh, right. the line art that, that she's prepared and the, the fine folks at Concordia Publishing House. Well, God's blessings on uh, your, your new thanks. ventures at Lutheran Hour Ministries and all that's going on there. And thanks for sharing your, your new book with us, The Illuminated Catechism, available from Concordia Publishing House. The Reverend Dr. Dr. Tony Cook, Director, United States Ministries, Lutheran Hour Ministries. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Coming up in just a little bit, Thy Strong Word, a listener-supported worldwide KFUO. Listen to Faith and Family Monday through Friday at this time. Faith and Family is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is needed for Faith and Family to continue. Our address is 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can contact us on the web and download Faith and Family at KFUO.org. Worldwide KFUO, on the air, online, and on demand.